0: This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castillo. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this edition of the program, it's time for an update on sub-Saharan Africa with our veteran panelists, Judd Devermont and Joshua Miservi. We focus this week on the implications of the tenuous ceasefire in the Tigray region of Ethiopia, former South African President Jacob Zuma's imprisonment, for refusing to respond to questions at a commission of inquiry into corruption, turmoil in Niswatini, formerly known as Swaziland, and a continent COVID update. Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. The recent ceasefire between Ethiopian Federal Forces and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, has brought shreds of hope to a region devastated by eight months of civil war. The fighting began when Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed began to crack down on the TPLF and sent forces into Tigray in November 2020. Eritrea also sent forces into the region. Both Ethiopian and Eritrean forces have been accused of engaging in ethnic cleansing and sexual violence. The civil war has created a famine in the region, and the United Nations hopes the ceasefire will give it the opportunity to effectively deliver humanitarian aid, although this has been made more difficult due to Ethiopian federal forces cutting electrical and communication lines and destroying two bridges. The New York Times called the current period in the kingdom of Eswatini, quote, the most explosive civil unrest in its 53 years of independence, unquote. Following the death of a 25-year-old student in May, supposedly at the hands of police, pro-democracy protests and looting of businesses owned by King Mswati III have broken out. Government forces have responded with violence and opposition leaders are in hiding. In South Africa, former President Jacob Zuma has been accused of corruption during his time in power. Zuma has denied these charges, and after failing to testify in court... He was given a 15-month sentence after almost 12 hours of negotiations between him, his representatives, officials of the ruling African National Congress, or ANC, and senior law enforcement officials. VOA says he has agreed to be taken into custody. As to COVID-19, the WHO reports that Africa marked its worst pandemic week ever. The World Health Organization says that, quote, COVID-19 cases have risen for seven consecutive weeks since the onset of the third wave in May, unquote. But even as cases climb sharply, vaccine deliveries from the COVAX vaccine sharing facility are accelerating. So joining us to discuss all of it are our two regular regional experts. Judd Devermont is director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a Washington-based policy group and Joshua Missouri. He is Senior Policy Analyst for Africa and the Middle East at the Heritage Foundation, and that's a think tank also based in Washington. And both gentlemen join me via Microsoft Teams. Gentlemen, welcome back to the program.
1: Good to be here. Happy to be here.
0: So let me start with you, Judd Devermont, regarding Ethiopia. What's your assessment of the state of play between the government and Tigray defense forces who are now in control of their capital, Mekele, having basically forced out Ethiopian and Eritrean troops? Have the Tigray defense forces endorsed the unilateral ceasefire announced by the government?
2: No, Carol, uh, they have not endorsed it. They've laid out a number of conditions that they want the central government to accede to, which would be the removal of the Amhara militia, the Eritreans pulling back and leaving the country, and then some very difficult asks of the government, particularly, to create procedures that would hold both Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed of Ethiopia and President Isaias Apewerki of Eritrea, accountable for the unrest and violence, and then they want the UN to do investigations. So the TPLF has set up some things in principle, which now throws it back to the Ethiopians to respond. But it's really important to take a step back here, right? Why was there a ceasefire? Well, because they lost the key town of Mekele. The government's economic picture was increasingly woeful. There was immense international pressure and we're on the cusp of the rainy season, which means you can't do very significant military maneuvers right now. So it was an opportunity for Prime Minister Abiy to take a step back to regroup, to wait for the election results and to put some pressure on the Tigrayans, which they've only responded in the most sort of minimal way. So I'm pessimistic looking forward, even though I wanna give this as best of a chance as possible.
0: Well, I'm glad you brought in that background information. So over to you, Joshua Mazervi, for your take on the situation as it stands now in Ethiopia.
1: Yeah, I have to continue the pessimism here, unfortunately. This was a unilateral ceasefire. The cynics could say that it was somewhat forced upon Abiy as the war has gone very poorly for him. The Ethiopian armed forces did indeed lose the key town of Mekele, as you mentioned. It's been a very burdensome, financially very burdensome for Addis Ababa to fight this war. And they have other pressures on other fronts. It's not just this war that is problematic for the capital. It's also a border dispute with Sudan. They are increasingly dead set, it appears, on doing a unilateral filling, a second filling, I should say, of a massive dam on the Nile River that is causing a lot of angst and even bellicose language from downstream countries like Sudan and Egypt, the two that are involved here. Then you have violence in other parts of the country as well. So Abiy is besieged on all fronts. The Tigray war has gone very poorly indeed. I think Judd is right that this withdrawal, this unilateral ceasefire, is potentially an opportunity for him to regroup There's concern that the new tactic that they are going to undertake is to try to slowly strangle Tigray, to cut it off from all outside means of support which they've already had somewhat of that strategy. Some people would argue there's been alarming calls for months now that famine is imminent or has even struck parts of Tigray. Despite government promises, there has not been unhindered humanitarian access. So there's already been some elements of trying to squeeze the Tigray population. There's concern that maybe that will be the true focus of this next stage of the campaign. I tend to think that might be accurate. I think maybe Abiy has realized he cannot win fighting against a guerrilla insurgency in Tigray, and so now he's going to readjust.
0: Well, you both brought out extremely important factors and other very worrying scenarios about the situation in Ethiopia between the government and the Tigray region. Of course, we're getting all kinds of pressure. We're hearing from the United Nations, from the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, Judd Devermont, saying that she had very harsh words for Abiy Ahmed, condemning the systematic rape of women, the obstruction of humanitarian aid, and of course the deliberate destruction of U.N. communications equipment. Is this pressure going to have any kind of effect on Abiy Ahmed to move forward or to respond even to some of the conditions that you outlined that the Tigray defense forces have demanded.
2: I think it's having some effect. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed started his tenure in 2018 with a almost gilded run, right? Concluding with the uh, Nobel Peace Prize that he won at the end of 2019 and All of these statements that is being made by the U.S. and other international partners is really taking a bite out of his reputation globally, which he does care about. But ultimately, words are not sticks, are not stones. And you can sort of recover from that. And Abhi's focused mainly on, you know, his domestic support and domestic legitimacy and it is an incredibly polarized place right now in Ethiopia, online and on ground. And so I think it's been very easy for him, while maybe sort of frustrated by the statements from the U.S., he's been able to discount them or to twist them as imperialist or neocolonialist and interference. So then the question really will be is, can the U.S. have an international coalition and consensus, which I think you're starting to see more alignment with the Europeans and increasingly a very good coordination with the african Mexican Security Council, Kenya, Niger and Tunisia to some degree. And then what are the things that need to happen to put additional pressure? There was already visa sanctions. There were some sanctions around military and economic assistance. But there are more things that you can do that will increase the pressure on Abiy to negotiate and to do a ceasefire to let humanitarian access. And I don't want to end by focusing all on sticks because Abiy also needs an offer ramp too that's positive. We also have to think about ways in which he can save face so that it is in his interest to negotiate so that we can move forward for this very important country, the second most populous country in Africa, an important linchpin for East Africa. So it's a balancing act. Strong statements, sanctions, but also some off-ramps hanging over all that, making sure that we're thinking about accountability and justice for all of the violence and diswrought we've seen over the past couple months.
0: Absolutely. And nobody is painting the TPLF rebels as angels in any way. But Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, he went into Tigray. It was supposed to be some kind of a law enforcement operation. It turned into a civil conflict. So over to you, Joshua Mazervi, because in terms of off-ramp, in a sense, he has won. I mean, he seems to have prevailed in the elections. We don't have the exact results yet in the national elections. But the international community is saying elections do not a democracy make in, in light of the civil war and the current tenuous ceasefire, much more must be done to hold everyone accountable for committing atrocities and to promote a national dialogue. Do you think that the government, once official results are announced and a government has been formed, that it will take steps to hold an all inclusive dialogue process, which can only benefit the country? Because as Judd said, there is no military solution here. How confident are you that that might take place?
1: I'm not too confident, unfortunately. There's two parties involved here, right? We're talking for good reason about ABI, but you also referenced the TPLF. And the TPLF, for as critical as I have been of the operations in Tigray by the federal government and certainly by the Amhara militias and Eritrea, the TPLF has much blame to bear as well. They absolutely attacked the Northern Command, which is a military base in Tigray. Now they would say that was a preemptive attack. Troops were massed on on the borders. That might be true. It's still not a good enough excuse. You're not allowed to do that in any sovereign country. So Avi was absolutely justified in taking very stern action. The problem is he was not justified in allowing or even ordering or, or whatever happened, all of the atrocities and the absolutely appalling crimes we've seen, which are probably just the tip of the iceberg because it's been very difficult to get information out of this region. So that's all a very long preamble to say you You have intransigence on both sides now and probably have had intransigence throughout this, which is actually what led to the conflict. The TPLF has been very unreasonable in its demands, even before the conflict. It also was provocative and was clearly trying to undermine what Abiy was doing. And then Abiy himself has been very intransigent. There's a lot of reasons for that, which make me think that inclusive national dialogue is not feasible, at least right now, because Abi has a domestic political constituency that he's very concerned about. It appears that he has been trying to build a constituency among the Amhara ethnic group. They have benefited greatly from the Tigray war. They've been able to reclaim. They would say reclaim. The Tigrayans would say take part of Western Tigray that they've had historic claims to. And this is necessary because Abi has lost support among his natural constituency, what many people thought was his natural constituency of the Oromo people. So Abi has a very difficult political path to tiptoe down here. And an all-inclusive national dialogue, one, I just think there's too much intransigence right now, I'm probably on both sides. But two, it could hurt him domestically among his constituents, particularly the Amhara. So there's going to be a lot to sift through here for him. And I I just don't think these dialogues work unless people are genuinely committed to them. Too often, I think the international community forces people to the table when they are not ready to have a genuine good faith discussion, which is the prerequisite or the sin qua non for actually achieving something meaningful. I think that's where we're at in Ethiopia.
0: Well, that's excellent analysis, and we will continue the conversation about Ethiopia in another program. First, you're listening to Encounter. On The Voice of America, joining me via Microsoft Teams are Judd Devermont, director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and Joshua Mazurvi, from whom you just heard. He's Senior Policy Analyst for Africa and the Middle East at the Heritage Foundation. And this is our periodic update on Africa. And this is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available for free download on our website at voanews.com encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel. VOA. Well, here's a shout out to a loyal encounter listener and Facebook fan, Fudamoto Yoshiyuki from Osaka, Japan. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page or you can send a good old-fashioned email. So back to our show and back to you, Judd. As I said, we're going to have to continue the conversation on Ethiopia as developments unfold. But now I'd like to turn briefly to South Africa. Of course, we have former President Zuma being accused of corruption. He was accused of taking bribes from a French arms company while he was deputy president. And then The Economist magazine says his reign as president was associated with looting of public funds, even destructions of parts of the state that were meant to stop graft. What are the political ramifications of the constitutional court's decision now to take him into custody after he refused to cooperate on the inquiry? Well, first, this
2: is a big win for democratic institutions. In South Africa, you know,
0: and actually it's part of
2: a larger story of we've seen some pretty bold action by courts in different countries. Kenya comes to mind recently, Malawi. But South Africa, the institutions are very strong. And this entire process around Zuma and what's called the Gupta Gate, all the corruption that happened under President Zuma's reign, the courts, whether the Zondo Commission or others, have been very diligent and very persistent about taking him to task, and his jailing, and it's not clear that he will serve his full term. Essentially, he's being jailed for contempt, but it's still a powerful signal. And the broader background is the heart and soul of the ANC. When Ramaphosa, when Cyril Ramaphosa became first the ANC president and then the country's president, you know, he inherited a party half loyal to Zuma and half, let's say, interested in a different direction, maybe not loyal to Ramaphosa, but looking for a different expression of governance and transparency. And by removing Zuma, it gives him another step towards owning this party or remaking this party. Zuma. Is still popular. There are several people in this party in the highest ranks that are aligned to Zuma, but his arrest and jailing gives Ramaphosa a very good chance to start this rehabilitation process, which is so necessary for both the ANC, but then obviously for governance, for the economy, for the COVID response in South Africa.
0: Josh Mazervi, what's your take on the ramifications of Zuma's imprisonment right now? Is this good news for the rule of law and even for the future of South Africa under Ramaphosa for now?
1: It could be. We have to wait and see. I absolutely agree with Jeb that it's a positive signal for sure. The reality of the ANC's rule, and they've dominated politics in South Africa since apartheid ended in 94, is that they have been above the law in many ways. Corruption has been a feature of this party, illegality. It's really mismanaged the country, and no one has really truly been held to account Zuma potentially will be the first. And just the mere fact that he actually is sitting in a jail cell right now, again, we don't know for how long, but that is positive. Now, I will sound one note of caution here in that we've seen anti-corruption campaigns instituted by new rulers and new leaders in various countries that are sometimes just cover for clearing the decks of political opposition. I have no idea if that's what's happening here. You know, I'm, I'm always a little cautious about This, even while I applaud the fact that Zuma, who there's a lot of evidence suggesting that he is deeply corrupt, Judd referenced Gupta Gate, where the Guptas were these Indian businessmen brothers who allegedly could even offer cabinet positions to people. That's the sort of power they had during Zuma's administration. So It's absolutely a positive first step. I will be anxiously watching and waiting to see how this unfolds, if indeed the rule of law wins out. And hopefully this isn't just an internecine power struggle uh, in the ANC, but indeed an actual campaign to bring the ANC under (laughs) the rule of law for the first time in its existence, really.
0: Well, gentlemen, as with Ethiopia, we'll keep tabs on developments in South Africa in the coming weeks and months. Turning now to the Kingdom of Iswatini, formerly Swaziland, let me turn to Judd Devermont for your take, Judd, on the turmoil. What's what's at the root of deadly protests we witnessed and to what extent are you optimistic about SADC, the Southern African Development Conference, helping out in this fact-finding mission?
2: So at root of the problem here is that this is an absolute monarchy where political parties have been banned since the 70s and there's no ability for people to influence their government. It started actually in late June when the government said that they would no longer take petitions from their citizens and then protests by teachers and others led to the deaths of certain students. And that created a much larger demonstration that has led to the government says 27 deaths, probably a lot more riots and looting, particularly around stores that are associated with the monarchy, with the king's family. There has been episodes of significant police brutality. We have a new podcast coming out, Carol, called 49, where we're doing 15 minutes on US policy towards every country in sub-Saharan Africa. And we interviewed one of the journalists, Belichle Mabusa, who was beaten badly and then had to be evacuated to South Africa. So There is really significant, worrisome developments there, essentially about accountability and about democracy. One of the demands is that the prime minister, they have an acting prime minister right now because the predecessor died of COVID. People want to be able to elect him and that's not how it works, the king appoints it. So democracy, accountability, free of an expression. It's incredibly important that there is support for the demonstrators to be peaceful and respectful of private property, but to help move this country forward. SADC has deployed, it wasn't a very successful mission. They didn't meet with many of the opposition, but I bring a note of optimism about SADC, which is not common. They tend to do better in these smaller countries. They have a good record in Lesotho. So I'm hopeful that they don't take this as just sort of one swing at the bat and the international community works with SADC, because in what other place in the world can you have an absolute monarchy like this, maybe outside of the Middle East, and can get away with this kind of brutality? So it's not an optimistic note, but I think this is a watch this space and continue to engage, even if it's a very small country.
0: Josh, Mazervi, anything to add or subtract on what's going on in Iswatini? I think
1: Judd covered it well. I'll just quickly say that the problems that East is facing are similar to problems that plague many African countries. You have very young populations who can see the rest of the world, they have access to media, and they see that other parts of the world are prosperous and peaceful. No country's perfect, but there are countries that give far more opportunities than they themselves enjoy. And they chafe at it, particularly in a context of (laughs) an absolute monarchy, which is, you know, we should be talking about France in the 1700s or something, but it still exists. (laughs) And I think those are fundamentally untenable in today's international environment Now, unfortunately, that does not mean authoritarianism is in retreat. We have far too many counterexamples, unfortunately. But I do think young people who are suppressed, generally stripped of their rights, don't have a say in their countries, are restive. And we're seeing that in Iswatini. This could be really positive or potentially it just fizzles and dies under a very almost brutal response that we've seen so far.
0: All right. Well, we'll keep tabs on Iswatini as well. But let's close by talking about COVID. And of course, it's hard to generalize, Judd Devermont, about 54 countries in the COVID pandemic in Africa. We're seeing, of course, another wave, but at the same time, an influx of vaccines.
2: I don't think we should be resting or sleeping on the COVID crisis right now in Africa. And I think that for those of your listeners who are in America, it's kind of hard with everyone increasingly being vaccinated and walking outside to remember that the pandemic is real and ravaging communities all across the world. You know, we've got about 5 million people who have had COVID across the continent, 148,000, at least according to statistics, who have died. Those are certainly underestimates just because of the low level of testing. But we do know how many vaccines have been distributed, and it's about 50 million, which is not enough for a population of 1.3, 1.4 billion. And so, yes, we are starting to see the U.S. commit to provide vaccines, and COVAX is slowly doing more, and we're seeing other countries like China and Russia distribute vaccines, but it's not enough. And at the same time, this current wave is really bad in places like Uganda and Namibia and South Africa and Kenya and the variants are multiplying. And so I think this requires an incredible amount of attention in getting those vaccines out and responding to a crisis that is not only ruining lives, but it's also keeping the economies in a very low growth cycle after last year. So there's a lot of reasons to be concerned and engaged here.
0: Josh miservi what would you add or subtract to that list of concerns? I'll add one.
1: The response to COVID on the continent is sucking up resources for a continent that already struggles with other diseases that are very serious. HIV AIDS, of course, is the best known, but Malaria kills many thousands of people all across the continent. And there's others that now the fight against those diseases is hampered. I think this is going to be a difficult ride here. And yes, it'll have the very negative economic effects that Judd mentioned and others. We might see societal unrest. Who knows what the consequences of this could be? But I am concerned about this.
0: Well, gentlemen, on that sobering note, I'm afraid that's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my guest, Judd Devermont director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and Joshua Mazurbi, senior policy analyst for Africa and the Middle East at the Heritage Foundation. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Sydney Sherry and Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America.